Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the last week of July 1934 and Australian newspapers carry sensational stories from all over the world. In Austria, Nazis assassinate the Chancellor Engelbert Dollfuss amid a bloody coup attempt meant to seize control of the Führer's birth nation. In America, John Dillinger's reign of terror is over, the gangster gunned down by G-Men as he leaves a movie theatre in Chicago. And in Canada, the Dion quintuplets are still alive, having now survived and thrived for more than 50 days. But on Saturday the 28th of July 1934 at the Murray Bridge racetrack about 45 miles east of Adelaide, the big headlines are far from the minds of punters readying to watch that afternoon's trial stakes. What they care about is who to put their money on. This race, over six furlongs, that is three quarters of a mile, is restricted to horses who haven't won a first, second or third place prize of greater value than £20. Garibaldi and Spearcom are supposedly the strongest contenders in the field of 14 starters. But there's increasing buzz around a seven-year-old Victorian gelding named Redlock. Owned by a jockey-turned-trainer, Charles Prince, this big horse has only arrived from Melbourne two days earlier. Redlock is a bit of a mystery. What is known is this. He's only won a single event, a maiden handicap in Gosford, New South Wales, the previous December, and since then has been unsuccessful in races in his home state of Victoria. Even so, Murray Bridge bookies are getting a lot of inquiries about him and the odds they're offering are shortening dramatically, from 10 to 1 and then 8 to 1 
and 5-2 until, just before the race, Redlocks at a pretty much unbackable 6-4. The clock strikes 4pm and they're off and racing. As the barrier rises, Redlock is seen to jump in the air, but in a split second he puts on a great burst of speed, galloping past his opponents as if they're standing still. A half mile out, Redlock's in the lead, three lengths ahead of a horse named Jalisco. Into the straight, Jalisco puts on a bit of pace, but Redlock is too fast and too strong. It's Redlock first past the post, beating Jalisco by two and a half lengths with Indian Corn running third and Garibaldi and Spearcom running fourth and fifth. Around the track there are mixed feelings at this surprise win. A few canny punters who bet early on Redlock are rolling in the money paid by bookies who've pretty much been cleaned out. Redlock's owner and trainer Charles Prince is one of the happy ones. While he's entitled to the £15 prize money, he's set to get £1,500 from a business partner who has bet heavily on Redlock. But when Bert Wolfe, aka Cardigan, turf editor for Melbourne's The Herald newspaper, hears of Redlock's win, he can't, won't believe the result. And so he'll soon set out for South Australia to see this mystery horse for himself. And what he'll find out will push big international stories right off the front pages. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Despite big, exciting newspaper headlines about Nazis, gangsters and miracle babies, day-to-day -day life for millions of Australians in 1934 was the grind of the Great Depression. While the worst of this economic disaster had passed, recovery was painfully slow, with one in five men still out of work. Across the country, millions were barely scraping by, and any inexpensive distraction from this seemingly endless hardship was welcome. A young bloke could take his best Sheila to a dance. A married man might shell out a few shillings to shout the wife and kiddies to the talkies. And a group of mates could forget their cares with an afternoon at the footy. As fun as these activities were, none paid for themselves or offered the promise of putting a quid or two in your pocket for next week's rent and groceries. But going to the races? The races meant not just a bit of sunshine, fresh air and the exciting roar of the crowd, they also offered the promise of you going home, or at least to the pub, with a pocketful of pound notes. All you had to do was pick a winner, and if you heard tell of a ring-in, then you'd be a fool not to have a flutter on a sure thing. The chain of events that led to the exposure of one of the most audacious frauds in Australian sporting history began with a tragedy nearly four decades earlier. In late April 1897, in Maitland, New South Wales, Herbert Wolfe, a well-liked and respected local merchant and accountant, suddenly found himself in agony. 
Wolf's undiagnosed liver abscess had burst, and over the next month, his condition deteriorated. Blood poisoning set in, a last-ditch operation failed, and on the 28th of May, Herbert Wolf died, aged just 33. He left behind three young children and wife Rebecca, then seven months pregnant. When Rebecca gave birth to a son on the 19th of July, 1897, she named him Herbert Austin Wolf after the father he'd never know. Growing up without a dad, young Bert spent much time with his maternal grandfather, horse owner and trainer John Mayo, who had a property called Heatherbray in West Maitland. In November 1903, when Bert was six, his granddad became a local hero when his horse, Lord Cardigan, won the Melbourne Cup. But a year later, little Bert got a shocking introduction to the realities of racing when Lord Cardigan died from a stomach rupture after his jockey pushed him too hard in the 1904 Melbourne Cup. Bert's granddad was distraught about the death of his beloved champion, and by mid-1906, he'd sold all of his horses. All that was except Lord Nolan, Lord Cardigan's brother, who little Bert had watched being foaled in 1905. John Mayo hadn't been able to sell this horse because no buyer would meet the £700 asking price. So, Lord Nolan became something of a pet, living in John's backyard with the old man doting on and personally training the horse. John Mayo went back to racing and in 1908, Lord Nolan had a string of victories that culminated in winning that year's Melbourne Cup. So, from his grandfather, along with uncles who were successful trainers, young Bert Wolfe received a thorough education in the ways of the turf. But the boy also got solid traditional schooling, first locally at Homeville near Maitland, then for a time at Winchester College in England before completing his studies at Fort Street Model School in Sydney. Growing up, Bert also served in the junior volunteer and senior army cadets at Fort Street before going on to do his bit in the Australian Field Artillery Militia. By July 1916, Bert had his first job as a racing writer with Sydney's Arrow newspaper. As was the practice then among sporting journalists, he adopted a pen name, calling himself Cardigan in honour of his granddad's first Melbourne Cup winner. But his insightful racing copy graced the Arrows pages for only a few months because Bert soon put down his pen to take up arms for king and country. Bert Wolfe's Australian Imperial Force attestation paper shows that on the 18th of September 1916, at aged 19 and two months, he enlisted for overseas service. On his form, Bert also pledged to remit two-fifths of his pay for the support of his widowed mother. When he signed his enlistment paper, Bert, whose life revolved around knowing the odds, had to know he wasn't any sort of favourite to come back in one piece. In the past two months alone, some 
23,000 Australians had been killed or wounded in the Battle of Pozieres in France. After training, Bert shipped to England and then to the Western Front, where in 1917 and 1918 he served as a driver with the 6th Field Artillery. Comparatively speaking, he had a good war. Bert's worst hospitalisation was for a nasty case of trench fever, the lice-borne disease that afflicted millions of soldiers on all sides in the abysmal trench conditions. After the armistice, Bert sailed back to Australia aboard the troop ship Euripides, arriving on Anzac Day in 1919. He was discharged in June and immediately resumed his turf writing career under the Cardigan name, filing again for the Arrow, but also for Sydney's referee newspaper. Cementing his family relationship with all things racing, Bert, in December 1920, married the daughter of a well-known Sydney trainer. Over the next seven years, Cardigan became one of Australia's most trusted turf authorities, with Bert becoming racing editor of The Referee before moving to Melbourne to take the role of sports editor with The Argus. But from 1927 to 1930, he stepped away from racing writing to take up the role of Chief of Stipendiary Stewards for the Queensland Turf Club. After this stint with officialdom, which involved ensuring the integrity of Queensland racing by overseeing stewards in charge of enforcing racing rules, Bert again picked up his pen as Cardigan, becoming turf editor for Sydney's Guardian newspaper. Of course, for any turf rider, Australian racing's biggest day was the Melbourne Cup, and each year Bert was there to cover the race that stops a nation. Notebook in hand, he'd jot down a few shorthand scribbles, and as soon as the winner passed the post, he'd find a phone, call whichever newsroom he was working for, and start dictating every detail of the race for the next edition with his remarkable reports running to three or even 4,000 words. Such was Bert's stature as a racing writer that in 1932, Sydney's The Daily Telegraph and Melbourne's The Herald newspapers pooled resources to pay for him to cover the biggest story in the history of Australian racing. The Daily Telegraph announced this in its 5th of February 1932 edition. Quote, Yesterday, on the Niagara, Mr. H.A. Wolfe, Cardigan, of the Daily Telegraph, sailed to America to follow the fortunes of Australia's racing marvel. For years, Cardigan has recorded Farlap's doings in this country. Now, he will tell Daily Telegraph readers of the record-breaker's deeds in America, on strange tracks and among a strange people. The story of Farlap's challenge to America is one that fires the imagination of all sporting men, and the description of the race and the days leading up to it will be of absorbing interest when handled by such an expert and such a facile writer as Cardigan. Side note, the definition of facile in this context means easy or effortless. When Cardigan sailed for America, the depression was at its worst, with nearly one in three men out of work, and the success of Farlap, even if he was originally from New Zealand, was a source of much Australian pride. 
and nothing could be more exciting than the Red Terror running in the Agua Caliente handicap in Mexico. Australians would experience Farlap's trials and tribulations via Burt's reports, and readers hung on his every word, from articles about a worrying hoof injury to asides about the Americans' silly attempt to re-nickname Farlap the Anzac Antelope. Burt reported how trainer Tommy Woodcock would hand-cut fresh grass for Farlap every morning and how jockey Billy Elliott was getting better and better times from the champion. As the big race drew closer, there was a swelling of Australian pride as Burt reported Farlap's sure rise to favourite starting at 7-5. to five. On the 21st of March 1932, Burt took readers to the track. Here's how his report read in Melbourne's Herald. Quote, it could not have been a better day for the big race. Warm in the forenoon with a breeze from the desert gradually getting chilly as the afternoon wore on. And the excitement. Thousands of motor cars, hundreds of aeroplanes, scores of movie cameras, everybody shouting, gambling, laughing and drinking. And Bert treated readers to a beautifully detailed account of Farlap's triumph. Quote, Amid scenes of wonderful enthusiasm, 50,000 racegoers saw Farlap run, perhaps the greatest race of his career, to win the Agua Caliente handicap today. Bert's moment-by-moment report detailed how Farlap had been cut off early in the race and fell back and wide before straightening up near the six furlong mark as Billy Elliott allowed him to hit his stride. Quote, in a flash, accompanied by the roar of the crowd, the horse cut down one runner after another and, although still wide out, raced to the leader, Cobizo, at the half mile. He stayed a moment, then, with a sudden dash, made a break of three lengths. Approaching the turn, Reveille Boy and Scimitar commenced to gain. When entering the straight, Reveille Boy was practically on terms with Farlap. They raced together for half a furlong. Then, the great strides of the Australian horse commenced to tell. He drew away and won by a little more than two lengths, easing up on the post, establishing a time record for the course. The crowd went mad with enthusiasm as Farlap returned to the winner's circle. Just over two weeks later, on the 6th of April 1932, in Melbourne's Herald newspaper, Bert broke the story that broke Australia's heart with a front-page article that simply began, quote, Farlap the Australian champion racehorse, died today. Burt's article brought home the hurt. Quote, Farlap's end came suddenly at 2.30pm today at Menlo Park, the beautiful training ranch belonging to Mr Edward Perry, 50 miles south of San Francisco. His fatal illness developed unexpectedly. Dr. Nielsen, Woodcock and Elliot were heartbroken over the loss of their horse. Elliot stood sobbing by his gear and refused to talk. Under the direction of Dr. Nielsen, the veterinary surgeons worked hard to save Farlap, but the disease made such swift headway they were unable to check it. For one hour, the news was kept a secret. Tommy Woodcock said, 
He took it like a gentleman and died a thoroughbred. He was in great pain, but did not let out a whimper. Australia's grief turned to anger when it was revealed Farlap had died of arsenic poisoning, and Bert's subsequent reports strongly reflected his belief that the champion had been deliberately killed. Back in Australia the following year, Sir Keith Murdoch, newspaper proprietor, met with Bert and said he was looking to hire Australia's best racing writer for the Herald. Bert's famous reply, you're looking at him. Murdoch knew better than to argue, and so on the 13th of October 1933, Bert was officially with the Herald. Announcing his hire as racing editor, the paper reported, quote, Cardigan is the foremost turf authority in Australia. He has watched racing in 19 countries of the world and is as well known in Townsville or Perth as he is in Melbourne and Sydney. The very next day, a major racing story started stirring north over the border in the southern New South Wales town of Holbrook. There, a horse named Duke Bombita won the Mountain View Handicap amid mutterings about the identity of this from-out-of-nowhere winner. This Duke Bombita resurfaced in Victoria at Chilton on the 28th of October, where he romped home in the Novice Handicap before disappearing again. Then, Exactly a month later, on the 28th of November 1933, in the Victorian country town of Kilmore, a big horse named Crybean was entered into the maiden handicap with a prize of £8. The horse, owned by a Mr Stenning and trained by a Mr Granfield, attracted initial odds of 4 to 1, but a betting plunge saw those shorten to 6 to 4. Crybean won, but there were red flags, and Cardigan was on the case. Writing in the Herald on the 30th of November 1933, after interviewing concerned officials from the Victorian Racing Club, Bert revealed doubts about the horse's real name. It had been entered in the race book as Crybean, sired by Chrysolnus to a mother named Sleeping Beauty. But that breeding description fit another horse named Cry's Bow, which had only been raced once back in 1929. Sounding an extremely sceptical note, Bert wrote, quote, Apparently his work in private influenced the support accorded him at Kilmore. Further, Bert reported, the supposed trainer Granfield wasn't listed as holding a license or permit both required to race at Kilmore Turf Club. But most telling, as Bert wrote, was that, quote, so far the stake for winning at Kilmore has not yet been collected by the connections of Crybean. Whoever was behind the horse hadn't claimed the £8 prize cheque, about $800 in today's money. This was the reddest of red flags because ring-in artists usually didn't collect stakes because doing so meant they could be charged for obtaining money by false pretenses. Where they made their money was from bookies. 
and Bert discovered that some 1,500 pounds had been bet on crybean, meaning that many thousands more, perhaps as much as half a million dollars in today's money, had been won by those in the know. Cardigan continued to chase the crybean case and on page one of the Herald on the 1st of December 1933, he reported, quote, Crybean is a will-o'-wisp. Late this afternoon, information was received that the mystery horse was stabled at Mr. M. Ryan's house in Patterson Street, Mooney Ponds. But although Crybean's rugs and other gear were in the adjoining box, the horse was not there. Bert interviewed Ryan's son Mick, who said that a man who'd given his name as Stenning had rented the stall at the back of the house about two weeks ago and told him the horse was Crybean. Mick described the animal, quote, He was a good sort of a horse and was a light brown with a white blaze and white hind fetlock. That meant Crybean had a white stripe on his face and a white rear foot, and these markings did not correspond with Cry's bow. Bert also charted the cunning behind the conspiracy. The real Cry's bow had been trained by a Mr. Granland, so nominating a horse named Cry Bean with a trainer named Granfield might seem like simple mistakes made by whoever recorded these names in the race book. Bert who'd spent the better part of three years guarding Queensland Turf Club races against such fraud, poured plenty of scorn on Kilmore officials who'd failed to do even a cursory check of Cry Beans registration. Bert interviewed the jockey who'd been hired to ride the horse just the night before the race, and he said he'd never seen the owner before and hadn't seen him since. The jockey also told Bert he'd been surprised at what a good galloper Crybean was, given he was supposedly a novice performer. Bert also discovered that Crybean had been transported to Kilmore from Mooney Ponds amid great secrecy, and that as soon as he won, Crybean was quickly spirited away. Bert went to the Ballarat address listed by the owner. R. Stenning and found no such person had ever lived there. But Bert had made a possible connection between Cry Bean and Duke Bombita, and through his investigations and his own encyclopedic turf knowledge, he had a theory that one or both of these mystery horses was actually a well-seasoned galloper from Sydney named Irby. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bert had seen old friend Irby run plenty of times, knew his markings and his running style, which tallied with what he'd been told of Crybean's appearance and performance. Yet, without hard evidence, Bert couldn't make an outright accusation in print. 
but he could make his suspicions clear by running an interview with Irby's owner, a Mr C. Sutherland, on the same page as his crybean coverage. Irby's owner said the horse had been spelling, that is, having a rest, in a paddock near Forbes in New South Wales, and that he'd been there for nearly three months under the care of a man named Thomas McMahon. Bert ran a photo of Irby, and what was obvious was that he had a white blaze and a white near hind fetlock. Bert followed up by sending a Herald man to that paddock in Forbes, and Irby was right there, just as described by his owner. But where else had Irby been in the past few months? According to Thomas McMahon, the horse hadn't left the paddock since he'd arrived from Sydney some 10 weeks earlier. Bert wasn't convinced. Neither were officials of the Victorian Racing Club, who were investigating the Crybean victory at Kilmore, or the Southern District Racing Association, which was looking into Duke Bombita's win at Holbrook. These two racing bodies were cooperating, and, Bert reported, the SDRA was sending photos of certain horses to the VRC. A few days later, Bert had four of these pictures for the Herald's front page. They showed Duke Bombita running at Seymour and Ballarat, Crybean winning at Kilmore, and Irby winning at Rose Hill in Sydney. It was clear that these horses... White Blaze, White Fetlock, Heavy Tail were incredibly similar, if not one and the same. Even so, official investigations moved slowly. On the 19th of January 1934, Bert was at the Southern District Racing Association's inquiry at Cootamundra in New South Wales. There, after hearing witnesses and grilling the conspirators who'd fronted for the hearing, the SDRA's stipendiary steward declared that he was certain that Irby had run and won as Duke Bombita at Holbrook. A man named Rupert Coglin, who'd nominated false Duke Bombita, and Thomas McMahon, who'd allowed Irby to be taken from the paddock as a ring-in, were both banned for life. Two other men involved... Irby's trainer, Stanley Biggins of Parramatta, and John Nathan of Wagga were also banned for life. Similarly, the horses Duke Bombita and Irby were never to be allowed to race again. While the SDRA had heard tangential evidence that pointed to Irby having run as Duke Bombita and Crybean in Victoria, these allegations were still to be officially investigated by the VRC. These cases were delayed while Coglin, Nathan and Biggins appealed the SDRA's lifetime bans. Of these appeals, only Nathan's would succeed. But the VRC's ring-in investigations were further clouded and complicated by new allegations that another different horse, in addition to Irby, had also been run as Crybean. 
By late July 1934, the VRC hadn't made any progress, though it had tightened regulations on registration and identification of horses, as well as introducing a new rule that no horse could be removed from the saddling paddock within half an hour of any race finishing without the permission of the stewards. If any ratbags were going to try a ring-in, they'd need to be smart enough to beat the stewards and staunch enough to stick around under scrutiny. At least, that was in Victoria. Then, in South Australia, on Saturday, the 28th of July, 1934, Redlock romped home at the Murray Bridge Trial Stakes. 400 miles east in Melbourne, the Herald's racing editor, Bert Cardigan Wolf, couldn't believe this news. So he picked up the phone and spoke to a mate nicknamed Stoppy, who was the sporting editor of the Adelaide News. Stoppy had been at the race, and Bert asked him what this redlock looked like and how he ran. What he heard was that this horse had a white leg and a small star on his forehead. While it was supposed to be a novice event, Redlock had run like an old stager and took a turn that usually troubled newer horses without losing an inch of ground. Bert delved into his racing records. What he found was that Redlock was a big brown gelding who'd been foaled in 1926 and registered in Sydney in early 1929. Now he was owned by a turf veteran named Charles Prince, who'd recently been training the horse northwest of Melbourne at Sunbury. Most telling was that in his whole life, Redlock had only raced 18 times and he'd never won even once. The next day, on page two of the Herald, Bert ran his report, headlined, quote, Redlock won at his 19th start, plunge hits the ring, easy win. You didn't need to be a turf expert to read between the lines of his article. Quote, Racing is a game of wits, and last week in the peace of the Sunbury countryside, a little man named C. Prince with a moderate horse named Redlock made plans to win a race on Saturday last and much money at the South Australian river town of Murray Bridge. His plans went as he hoped them to go, and Redlock, who was backed for a comparative fortune, won the handicap trial stakes with ease. Bert detailed how long odds had shortened quickly under a sudden deluge of bets placed on the, quote, unknown performer. He wrote that as recently as the 28th of June, Redlock had run fourth in a second division race at Sunbury. Bert came close to sarcasm with this commentary, quote, Apparently his form in that race convinced his owner that despite his many failures and the fact that he was racing out of his class, that he would prove too good for the moderates at Murray Bridge. Bert had asked his mate Stoppy to send him photos of Redlock winning and weighing in. When they arrived, he knew. Bert later recalled, Quote, as soon as I saw the photograph, I knew Redlock was Irby, even though he did not have the blaze on his face. While the Crybane case had come to naught, Bert wasn't letting this one go. But he wasn't the only one who was sus on Redlock. 
Murray Bridge officials had responded to speculation over Redlock's identity and checked him over, but they were satisfied that the horse was as recorded in the race book. Yet rumours persisted, so the South Australian Jockey Club sent officials to Murray Bridge where they personally checked brands and markings against Redlock's registration papers and the details of him in the yearling catalogue. They too were satisfied that Redlock was Redlock. Despite officialdom being satisfied, Bert Wolf wasn't. And on August the 7th, he published a big article under the headline, Murray Bridge Winner is a Mystery, Different Markings in Races. This article was accompanied by photos showing Redlock running at Bacchus Marsh on the 12th of June with a near white hind leg, and then at Sunbury on the 28th of June without any such marking. Burt also sent a Herald representative in search of Charles Prince and Redlock in South Australia. Finding them, the reporter wrote, quote, The horse, a fine big bay or brown gelding, had a rug on it and its only visible marking was a white sock on the fetlock of the near hind leg. The marking was similar to the one Redlock had when it raced at Murray Bridge, and indeed, the two horses appeared to be identical. The journo quizzed Charles Prince, who, he reported, was frank and willing to answer questions. Quote, Shown pictures of a horse purporting to be Redlock running at Sunbury and another of a horse running at Bacchus Marsh, Prince said they were Redlock. The reporter pointed out that the photos showed different markings and, quote, Prince was apparently puzzled. He said that they were the same horse and the white markings must have been there. This was perhaps plausible. The photographic reproduction could have been at fault or maybe the marking had been obscured by dirt or mud. Charles Prince was certainly acting like an innocent man. He'd even collected the £15 prize check for the Murray Bridge win. And given the scrutiny he was under, wouldn't a guilty fella just cut and run? Instead, Prince had entered Redlock into the trial handicaps at Kadena, which was to be run the following Saturday. Now Bert took the story into his own hands, flying to South Australia to see Prince and Redlock for himself. On Friday the 10th of August, Bert's story was on the Herald's front page. Headline, Racing Officials and Cardigan Inspect Redlock. Quote, Adelaide, Friday. With the stipendiary stewards of the SAJC, I went to stables opposite Morfittville Racecourse today and inspected Redlock. Redlock is everything that has been said about him. He is a big, strong gelding who looks as if he could carry a 12-stone man with ease. He is a fawny brown, and having been clipped, his colour is light. He has a few white spots on his near hind leg, on his near hind quarter, and his near hind leg has a white sock. His brands, with the exception of that which is inside a curly L, are blotched and hard to discern. Redlock, according to his registration, has one over five on his offside shoulder, but they cannot be made out. At this spot, there are two patches of hair which appear to be of a different colour from the hair surrounding them. The most interesting part of Redlock's markings is the white on his face. 
According to registration, Redlock has only a few white hairs on his forehead, but this horse has a lot. In addition, he has a white star on his top lip, while his bottom lip is also white. The hair from the top of his forehead to the tip of his nose is darker than the rest of his face. As Bert and the SAJC officials inspected Redlock, Charles Prince was eager to help, answer questions, point out markings, and tell how he'd come to buy the horse. He said he'd met a man named Alf Anderson in the lounge of the Pastoral Hotel in Melbourne in April and bought the horse for £30, sight unseen. He even had a receipt. And he said to Bert, quote, He is going to run at Kadena and you ought to back him for he's a good thing. Charles Prince seemed as sound as a pound and Bert would later write, quote, That was the only time I was a little shaken in the whole story. I thought if Prince had anything to hide, he would keep me away. But Bert had spotted something. Quote, I inspected the horse and thought I could see a stain on his face where the white had been coloured. Surreptitiously, Bert used his handkerchief to pat the horse's forehead. When he took it away, it was stained. Officially, though, Redlock had the all clear to run at Kadena. On Saturday, the 11th of August, 1934, Redlock was the focus of everyone's attention, with punters flocking to the fence to see him in the mounting enclosure. But Redlock's odds, a starting price of 6-4, to four, meant there were barely any bets on him. When the barrier went up, Redlock shot to the lead. Bert wrote, quote, He took command, and the further he went, the greater was the gap between him and his opponents. He won by 12 lengths in the excellent time of 1 minute 28 seconds for the seven furlongs. The time was all the more impressive because Redlock was running a slow and muddy track. Quote, It was an outstanding performance, never before registered by a horse in trial stakes on the Kadena Racecourse. What's more, Bert wrote, the horse barely broke a sweat. Quote, Redlock pulled up as if he had not had a race and was not in the least distressed. On the following Monday, Bert's investigations dominated the Herald's front page. Headline, Murray Bridge Redlock, a ring-in, audacious fraud exposed. And then the real shocker, Cardigan says ring-in is Irby. What's more, the Herald's sporting editor had another scoop. While Bird had been watching Irby as Redlock win at Kadena, the sporting editor had gone to a paddock near Malmesbury in central Victoria and found the real Redlock, whose markings and brands perfectly matched his registration. Bert reported from Kadena, quote, I have no hesitation in asserting that the gelding which raced at Kadena on Saturday is our old friend Irby in a new guise. I know Irby well. I have watched him race and win on numerous occasions in Sydney and on provincial tracks within the metropolitan radius. I know his markings and characteristics. I say definitely that Redlock is Irby. The blaze down his face is missing and the brands are different. He continued, He is a gelding with many names. Last year he raced at Holbrook as Duke Bombita. 
On November 28 last year, he won in sensational manner at Kilmore as Crybean, and now he has reappeared as Redlock. While Redlock hadn't broken a sweat at Kadena, his owner and trainer, Charles Prince, was now doing little else, especially as Bert was confronting him face to face. On that Monday, the 13th of August, the Herald's evening edition front page headline was Prince's Talk with Cardigan. While detectives and racing officials were examining the horse at its Morfittville stable, Bert put his accusation to Prince directly. Quote, the Herald says this horse is a ringing and his right name is Irby. Prince didn't say anything for a minute and then said that Bert might be right and he might be wrong. Quote, All I know of this horse is that I bought him for £30 from a man in a hotel in Melbourne, and if he is wrong, then I do not know anything about it. Bert asked whether Prince knew of the discovery of the real Redlock at Malmesbury. Yes, he did. Quote, What have you to say about it? Prince, I have nothing to say. It does not concern me. But it did. Because now that the Herald had forced the issue, the SAJC was finally taking real action, as were the South Australian police. Redlock slash Irby was placed under guard and the police had its brands examined by an expert. The expert said he thought there was a foreign substance on the horse's face and that the brands on the off-shoulder were blotched. When the South Australian police interviewed Prince, he told them what he'd told Bert about buying the horse sight unseen from a man calling himself Mr Anderson at a Melbourne hotel. But the receipt he said he had was little more than a scribble on a piece of paper. Prince continued to act in a frank and open manner. He assisted SAJC officials in shaving Redlock to see if other brands had been superimposed on the original brands. And they had. On Redlock's near shoulder, Irby's brands, an inverted capital T over a script Y, were visible beneath an LH which had been superimposed. Now Kadena Stewards lodged a formal objection against Redlock's win, awarded the race prize to second-place getter Jalisco and banned Charles Prince for life. Bert reckoned they were shutting the gate after the ring-in had run. Quote, There is strong criticism in Adelaide racing circles of the manner in which the case was handled by the SAJC officials, who persisted in their statements that the horse was the real Redlock and yet did not make any attempt to shave the brands of the gelding until the Herald's story forced them to take action. Bert's love of horses shone through as the article continued. Quote, One of the sad features of the case is that a good, game, honest horse like Irby, who has won 23 races and has been second 16 times and third 11 times, should have to suffer such indignity. At his time of life, he is eight years old, he should be looking forward to a life of ease in some grassy paddock instead of being hawked around to various places to be dyed and painted. While Bert was very critical of the SAJC, its stipendiary stewards actually thanked him for doing their job for them in helping to expose the fraud. With the stewards' investigation complete, 
Charles Prince was arrested by Adelaide detectives. His big mistake had been that after the Murray Bridge race, he'd wandered into the club's secretary's office on other business and been handed the £15 winner's cheque. Refusing the money, he knew, would look incredibly suspicious, so he had no choice but to sign for it and seal his fate if the ring-in should ever be exposed. Now it had been, and the police charged him with receiving money under false pretenses. Irby was impounded, and his hair allowed to grow out over a month, which fully exposed his white blaze. Meanwhile, Charles Prince's conspirator in the Redlock Irby ring-in was found to be none other than banned-for-life Rupert Coglan, who'd been instrumental in the Duke Bombita Irby ring-in at Holbrook in New South Wales. Coglan was arrested and charged in mid-September. The other person named in the charges was Mr Roy Francis, a.k.a. Mr Alf Anderson, but this mastermind had been smart enough not to stick around. As soon as the Kadena race had been run and it looked like the ring-in was about to be exposed, Roy Francis had disappeared from his Melbourne hotel and was soon half a world away on a ship bound for England. Scotland Yard detectives would find him in Liverpool and interview him, but Australian authorities decided it would be too expensive to bring him back to face charges. Charles Prince was tried in Adelaide's criminal court and pleaded not guilty. The real Redlock was the case's star exhibit, standing in the court quadrangle so that witnesses might examine him and compare him to the horse who'd run and won at Murray Bridge. Charles Prince continued to say he was a scapegoat. In an unsworn statement, he told the jury, quote, I ask you to believe that if any persons deliberately planned that I should race another horse as Redlock, I was innocent of the scheme. So far as I knew, the horse I brought to Adelaide was the horse sold to me as Redlock. The jury didn't believe him, and on the 4th of October 1934, Prince was found guilty and the judge sentenced him to two years in prison. Rupert Coughlin followed the same defence strategy when he went to trial in mid-November, claiming he'd been duped by Roy Francis and only realised Redlock wasn't Redlock just minutes before the Murray Bridge race. The jury didn't believe him either, and he got nine months prison. Charles Prince, the little man with the royal name, served only five months of his sentence, being released as part of clemencies to mark the visit of the Duke of Gloucester. Upon release, Prince, who'd pleaded not guilty, sold his story to the Sporting Globe newspaper, and in a series of articles reveled in revealing how he'd shampooed Irby, repeatedly dyed him, and then changed his brands by meticulously plucking the horse's hair with tweezers and doing a little bit of creative hot iron branding. But the potential darker side of the ring-in was also exposed. Prince said he would have gotten away with it if Roy Francis hadn't betrayed him by not getting rid of the one piece of evidence that had led to his downfall. Quote, 
And if they had done what they told me they had done, destroyed the real Redlock, Irby would have been racing today. Prince also reckoned he might have saved his skin after the Murray Bridge race by destroying Irby, but he'd grown too attached to the horse, only for Irby to then seal his fate by winning the Kadena race by a massive 12 lengths rather than the one or two that might have aroused less suspicion. Nearly 20 years later, in February 1954, Charles Prince saw his fortunes turn again thanks to royalty. To celebrate young Queen Elizabeth II's visit to Australia, the SAJC issued an amnesty and lifted Charles Prince's life ban. That put him back on the front page of the Herald newspaper, whose racing editor was still Bert Wolfe, and Cardigan took the opportunity to retell the story of his role in exposing Irby, the King of the Ring-Ins. Interviewed by the Herald, Prince retold his side of the caper before revealing he was now going to get back into the game by buying a couple of horses and taking up training offers in country Victoria. But it wasn't to be. When Charles Prince applied for a licence, the VRC knocked him back. While Charles Prince had to be content living a quiet life in Violet Town, country Victoria, Bert Wolfe continued to write about racing for the Herald in Melbourne. In 1960, he recounted his long career in a series of articles that, among other things, revealed how he'd needed to carry a gun while working as a steward and what it had been like visiting Hitler's horse stud in Germany. Bert Wolfe retired from the Herald in 1963 and moved to Sydney, where he died in 1968. Charles Prince passed away in Violet Town two years later. That same year, 1970, Bert Wolfe was honoured by having the most prestigious award in Victorian racing journalism, the H.A. Wolfe Award, named in his honour. More recently, Bert's legacy was celebrated when he was inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame in 1990 and into Melbourne Press Club's Media Hall of Fame in 2011. As for Irby and Redlock, well, back in 1935, it didn't look like these banned-for-life horses were going to have the easy life in a paddock. Not if Melbourne sideshow proprietor P.J. Lennon got his way. In May 1935, he bought Redlock for £37 at a horse auction and was said to be in negotiations to acquire Irby. Putting these two horses side by side in his sideshow was sure to draw curious crowds. Except Lennon was unable to buy Irby and his grand plan was foiled. Lennon's 16-year-old son Percy, though, had his own idea, conceiving a stunt which would see him ride Redlock from Melbourne to Sydney. Percy wanted to break the 13-day record for such a marathon and arrive in time to make a grand entrance at the Sydney show. Quote, If I can do 50 miles a day, I'll be able to break that easily. It will be a very stiff time for Redlock, but we have been feeding him up in the last six months and he is very fit. 
The Victorian Society for the Protection of Animals thought this smacked of cruelty and protested loudly against the Redlock Ride. Nevertheless, at 10am on the 18th of March 1936, a large crowd gathered outside Melbourne's GPO in Elizabeth Street to see young Percy head north on Redlock. The pair lasted three days, making it as far as Aubrey, where Redlock had a fall after being frightened by a car. Fortunately, the horse and boy suffered only minor injuries, but Percy, despite further protests from the VSPA, said he was determined to continue when they'd both recovered. He did, kinda, by taking Redlock via train to Sydney, where their photo made the Daily Telegraph as they headed towards their grand entrance at the showgrounds. But Redlock wasn't that much of an attraction, and skint Percy Lennon sold him for just £10 to a horse dealer who said he'd likely try to race him in Queensland. And it was in Queensland that Redlock raced once more in the Kedron Maiden Handicap on the 28th of July 1936. Hopefully, after that, he was put out to pasture. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell a friend or two and leave a rating and review at iTunes. For photos and more information about this and other Forgotten Australia stories, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia was written, produced and presented by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.